You are listening to the 10 Minute Entrepreneur Podcast with host Sean Castrina. Today's gonna be a great podcast. I'm excited. I've got entrepreneurs. I've got I've got people that graduated from Harvard Business School, which is pretty amazing. But they're entrepreneurs first and foremost, so that's gonna be great. I have Catalina Daniels with me and Jim Sherman, and they're the author of Smart Startups: What Every Entrepreneur Needs to Know, and advice from 18 Harvard Business founders, students that went to the business school. All right, it's great to have you both. Thank you. Great to be here. There we go. Thank there you we go. For That's what I needed us. to hear. <laughs> Good. There was a little delay there. I'm like, oh, I don't hear anybody. But yet I see you two. So I, we're going to get into the book in a second, but I, I, you're both entrepreneurs. So when did you know, we'll go from Jim to Catalina, when did you both know you were entrepreneurs? Because you guys were in the corporate world there for a while. Uh, yeah, sure. Thanks, uh, Ken. Thanks for the introduction. Um, I think I would say that I was a bit of a, almost an accidental entrepreneur. While I had been a consultant at Bain for a few years and then worked in the media business and launched the internet division for Martha Stewart Living, uh, that was uh, way back in 1997. Uh, after that experience, I had gotten a flood of phone calls to help others launch uh, their internet operations, mainly media and entertainment companies. And I decided to actually strike out at that point to become an entrepreneur. I didn't realize it at the time, but that first company, uh, West End New Media, an internet strategy consulting firm, uh, we ended up growing to be the, the largest uh, working with publishing co- uh, clients in the U.S. And then later on, I went on to do other companies, including an online media company and then an e-commerce venture. So um, as a serial entrepreneur, I've derived a lot of great uh, 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 self-enrichment from it and enjoyed the, and, and, the, and the passion that comes from, from being a founder of companies. All right, I'm getting ready to get to Catalina. I know my audience picked up on that. He called me Ken. It's only because I'm ridiculously good looking and I look like maybe... I could play the person who starred with Barbie, oh, but Sean, no, sorry, <laughs> no, no problem. I think Vincent's going to get that anyway. But if if it just just goes through there, I know my audience like. Now I cannot believe Sean didn't interrupt him. Sean would interrupt his own kids. Okay, all right. Next, obviously, Catalina. Let me hear your your how you got it. Yeah. So I. Yeah, well, I, you know, I found my right time to jump, as we call it in the book. So um, after business school, I rejoined McKinsey and Company. It felt like a great idea back then. Um, And uh, I wanted to do that for a couple of years, knowing that I wouldn't stay there for the rest of my life. Uh, But I ended up spending another 15 years at McKinsey. And I actually uh, decided to quit uh, finally after 15 years, not truly knowing what I wanted to do, but um, so I wasn't decided on I'm going to start a company or join a recently started company or whatever. Uh, Serendipity played a big role for me because I announced that I would quit. Um, and that uh, initially I wanted to take a sabbatical, but people started talking to me. And uh, that's how I, you know, was started to become an entrepreneur. Um, the the step from being a partner at McKinsey and Company uh, to becoming an entrepreneur is an unusual one, to say the least. And so I remember what helped me uh, make that jump is talking to people that knew me well, that were much older. 
and asking them, do you see me as an entrepreneur? I mean, you know, they've always known me as somebody at McKinsey and Company. So do you think I've got that in me? And they gave me the courage to make the jump and to go for it. Um, by the way, on that topic, uh, and I think it applies to both Jim and myself, uh, we don't think you need to be born an entrepreneur to become one. You need to find the right time to jump. Yeah, no, that was mine. I never saw myself uh, necessarily being an entrepreneur. I, I, My personality was I figured I would get into any company that I chose to work for coming out of college. And at some point, I would just be the CEO. To me, it was really simple. Okay, there. He has that job. I have this job. How many years will it take? Or, you know, is it possible? Is it feasible? Maybe I'll yeah. just be the VP. Maybe I'll, wh whatever it is. But I would just kind of look at the pecking order and see how that played itself out. And I was fine with that, long as I could make the kind of money that I wanted to. And then I lose my that job. And then I realized, hey, I, there is no such thing as job security. So uh, clearly, you guys obviously went to Harvard Business School. I mentioned that. But it, it sounds to me like that was pre-entrepreneurship like so that wasn't like okay i think i need to go to harvard business school to be an entrepreneur am i incorrect or correct on that no that's right that's right the the entrepreneurship came after we graduated okay so i just got two super smart people so i i i'm working back from there which is which is important so let me ask you this okay obviously the, the whole book and I, and I love the the title got me smart startups what every entrepreneur needs to know because i have a few things that i think they need to know so i'm going to bounce it against the you know what you guys say so you 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 know you talk to 18 harvard business school founders people obviously this is a super bright group I and mean, there's no getting around that um and probably students could probably help probably get funding a little, you know, it would come easier to them. But take those things aside, it's still a tough journey and and, and you got to go after it. So tell me what you found talking to these founders that, that you know, that entrepreneurs need to know. Well, I think that the first thing that is absolutely critical, uh, and then I'll turn it over to Catalina here in a second, uh, is really being able to validate whether or not this idea that you have is it really a great opportunity? I mean, this is obviously clearly the fault, uh, the key fault that companies have in, in getting something off the ground. They're, they may be misassessing whether or not that idea is really a large opportunity or not. And we draw that distinction uh, between what is a large market on the one hand versus a large opportunity. Just because you may think you're targeting a large market doesn't mean that that's a large opportunity. And so we talk about this in our chapter, actually, in the book about the ideation triangle. And this is a key point on the triangle, because what defines the opportunity is what value you are bringing to a market. What problem are you solving? What benefit are you bringing to a potential customer base or user base? So that's absolutely crucial to understand that distinction between market size and opportunity. Uh, secondly, it's very important for the founders, they also had to look at what relevant skills they had. And, and interestingly, they didn't necessarily have a lot of industry expertise for the ventures that they launched. In fact, the founders of Rent the Runway pointed out that, uh, Jenny Fleiss pointed out that had you come from within the industry, you might be much less likely to actually disrupt it. So being a newcomer to an industry was actually very helpful in being creative and coming up with ideas. But it did still mean that you needed to have at least relevant skills to execute 
on whatever opportunity you wish to pursue. And then finally, the third point of the triangle, as we discuss it as this ideation triangle, is having the passion to actually pull it off. You need to have that passion. You need to obviously enjoy whatever it is that you're doing. Uh, so, so those are the three most critical elements. And I think uh, it's something that we really dissected quite a bit in, in the discussions with the entrepreneurs and how they came upon uh, assessing these opportunities that they, uh, for, their, for the launch of their ventures. No, I, I, like, I like those three. So what do you have to add to that, Catalina? Well, I think I think the question you asked, Sean, is is a difficult one because uh, what if we find that is critical? We actually summarized twenty pearls of wisdom uh, in in the book, and uh, Jim is referring to one of them. Um, the reason why I think that the question is difficult is I've got my favorite ones. He's got his favorite okay, ones. I just, I want but you every to time do. you talk, you give every, me your every time five. you talk to somebody. Yeah, I'll give you. I'll give you yeah, my quick. my top. Just kind of like going example. through, like it's yeah. a game show. If you had to, sure. On you know, you're, you're sure. on like you know, culture. Of, yeah, go quick. Yeah, culture is one of them. We had not anticipated this, but the message is: uh, work on your culture early on, as of ten employees. Okay, that's one. Two, governance is also underappreciated. Don't see it as something that's inflicted on you but see it as an opportunity to work with people you could never hire, okay? The third one I would mention, which is related to what Jim was talking about, is how far people would go to validate demand without, without raising funds. I mean, typically founders think they need to raise funds before having validated demand. The message in the book is go as far as you can without uh, raising funds. So that, those would be at this point in time today, my top three. But the third one that you mentioned, I can't validate. And I mean, I cannot endorse enough because I tell every single person that I beta test all my businesses and I just launched two here in the last six months and I, I need another business like a hole in the head. Um, but I, I launched both of them with under a thousand dollars when I could have easily put a hundred grand into it. I mean, I mean, I could have, most people probably would have, but I was like, no, I'm not quite sure. I, I think these are good, but I literally like did a 60,000 home beta test with Valpac for a thousand dollars, set up a phone number, just bought the phone number just to see if there'd be a demand. And then if we got the demand, then we would reverse engineer things within the first two weeks to, to, to do, to do the fulfillment part. But I was like, no, I, I'd rather tell them that we had such an overwhelming response that we're a few weeks behind in our ability to fulfill than to have all my fulfillment in place and nobody calls. And, and but, no but customers. That's exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's exactly it, Sean. I mean, there is this myth that you need a lot of money to get started. It's just not true in a vast majority of the cases. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Yes. Now you, Jim. In one in one quick example that I that I love is Yumble Kids, uh, a fresh meal service that targets parents with uh, meals for their children. They got going literally without any back end operation. They just simply posted in Facebook mommy groups to really test whether there would be customer demand for what they were offering. And they got going literally by cooking in their own apartment kitchen and the founder would deliver the meals 
herself, actually, she went, you know, direct to the to these uh, apartment owners to deliver the fresh meals. But really, there was no there was no sophisticated website, no sophisticated back end platform to, for taking orders. Merely threw up the offering uh, on on a Facebook mommy group to, to to test the waters, as you had described earlier, uh, to 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 in a low cost way and validating the demand as cheap as you can is absolutely essential because you first need to do that but secondly you'll you'll be forced to come up with creative ways of how of of really executing on it when you when you have fewer resources you often come back with the most creative and best way to move the business forward yeah no it's to try i literally told my son i said i want you to create a one-page website well, i can make it more i go no i don't even want it more i specifically want one page because i want to be able to grab their attention because i have a theory that people don't like to read websites that you catch them with the heading, validate why you can do it, make an offer, whatever, keep it simple. I said, no, this because this proves what I've always thought for over 20 years. And so it was like one page. Needless to say, within six weeks, I ordered a 911 Porsche and I don't need one of those. But it was kind of like a, like a, just a toy because I was like, I didn't need this business, but I it was kind of like a challenge. I kept hearing about all these online. I kept hearing about so many difficult businesses when you're like doing podcasts like I do. And my son's in his 20s, so I hear about all the cute, fun businesses. And I literally said to him, I will start a business within the next 24 hours. Didn't even know what it was going to be. Within the next 24 hours, it will make profit within the next 30 days. Just to show you, this is not rocket science. There are fundamentals, and I know what they are. And I did it, <laughs> and, and needless to say, a beautiful 911 Cabriolet uh, is being built. Um, and it takes nine months to get it delivered. So, so tell me what you would say is the big, the, you know, you, you obviously know what does work, but what did you, what was the mistakes each one of you, if you could give me that you were kind of surprised, like, okay, or oh, I didn't hear this, or I didn't hear that, like something that you thought probably would have been, you know, important, but wasn't. Um. In certain terms of something that we thought would have been more important. Um, yeah, you know, you did the, you know, you kind of like, okay, wow, you know, this was them, but because I've done that where I'm like, man, I would have thought for sure that would have been, you know, important or that would have been maybe more needed. So after, you know, you know, looking at the startups by these, you know, obviously pretty bright founders, I would think there would be maybe something that, that they discovered that, okay, something unique. I'm looking for something unique. Well, I think that one of the things that was unique, frankly, is when we talked to them about their exiting and their aspirations for where they wanted to take the business. I think that, you know, I would have expected there to be a very logical progression and they would have gone from step A to B to C and then that they would have found a, a buyer of their business or, you know, figured out whatever that uh, exit that they had hoped for. But I think it was very surprising with our interviews and talking with the founders, the ones that did experience an exit. Now, a number of these companies are still operating, by the way, but some of them that have gone through an exit, I think what was really surprising was how uncontrolled it was, how it came about due to circumstances that they were that ha they had let little influence over. So, for example, uh, in the case of, of Dot and Bow, when, you know, they hadn't been thinking about an exit, they were thinking about raising money, their fundamentals were not bad at all, their, their sales had grown to uh, $100 million a year in the course of just uh, uh, four or five years. Uh, but when 
when Kings Lane stumbled with their financing, it cast a terrible, uh, a whole cloud over the entire sector. And all of a sudden, uh, the, the financiers looked at the e-commerce business for home furnishings in a very negative light. And it, and it basically triggered uh, a rapid fire sale situation for Dot & Bow. Very similarly with, with Plated versus Blue Apron, when Amazon bought Whole Foods, that cast a pall over the IPO for Blue Apron. When Blue Apron stumbled to some extent with the IPO, that made it very difficult for Plated to carry on with financing. So it triggered all sorts of uh, a, a rush to exit. Now they were fortunate in being, being able to find a buyer and on good terms, but that only happened because they laid out the steps and built a relationship with Albertsons uh, who acquired them, they built that relationship from years earlier. So I think that the exit uh, situation is one where founders think that they're going to just be able to determine an exit point in the future, in year three, four, or whatever, but it doesn't turn out that way. Circumstances are such that there are uncontrollable events that are going to hit them that are going to trigger those discussions in a majority of cases, not when the entrepreneur may like it. And so I, the, the bottom line learning from this is always be prepared, always be prepared and, and take early steps towards your end game, which means meet with bankers, go to conferences, network, talk to your competitors, talk to partners, talk with anyone who you think could be a potential buyer, build relationships early on, because you may need to leverage those in the future when you least expect it. No doubt. I, I, I've always, I always say that, you know, the idea is, you know, it's kind of like the Stephen Covey principle, begin with the end in mind, but it's so true. You build it as if you could, you want to always be able to sell your company. And everybody says, I'll never sell it. I'm so emotionally attached. I said, that's great. But you want to be able to sell it. You want to be able to validate the numbers. You want to be able to present a sellable company to someone at any given time, within every three months, you need to be able to put that company up on the pageant stage. Mm -hmm. How about that's you? right? And if you don't, if you don't have a plan B, should you, uh, should financing be challenged for you? If you don't have that plan B, then you're going to be facing a fire sale situation. So you have to try to uh, to manage these things as as best as you can. Yeah, no doubt. How about you, Catalina? Is there is there one thing that just kind of you were surprised by it? Um, again, many things surprised me, but when you asked the question, you talked about mistakes that some of these founders made that surprised me. And uh, I had to think for a while, but I would say um, things that are relating related to the fundraising, we heard a lot of input, a lot of points made about mistakes related to the process and the timing of fundraising. Um, the process, uh, you know, shooting in all directions, not do your not enough doing your homework about who's the right investor because there is a Venn diagram. You need to hit the right investor for your business at the right time. Um, but so finding the right investor, not enough building uh, trust over time and just sending out cold emails without warm introductions, that kind of stuff. Um, so we heard quite a few examples about that, which surprised me, frankly. 
Um, the, the, other, the other part of the surprise is, is around timing of fundraising. So we had a couple of examples and um, Anna from work is one of them uh, where she had the opportunity to raise early on uh, before validating product market fit, the point we were making before. Um, things were going okay, but she wasn't growing as fast as she wanted to and the investors wanted her to grow. And so at some point she took a pivot, but a serious pivot. And, um, you know, she talked about that as being a pretty heavy experience because investors had invested in one idea, but not in, in the new idea, the, the idea of the pivot. And if you take a serious pivot, it's like starting a new company, uh, including on the fundraising side, you need more funds. Um, and so all of that surprised me, frankly. I, I thought, um, you know, I, it's one of the areas where they talked fairly openly about the mistakes they made. We learned quite a lot about that. Uh, fundraising is a big topic. It's also a big part of the book. Um, but uh, yeah, that's what I would say. The, that surprised me. Uh, with fundraising, I mean, you're once you once you start taking other people's money, the game changes completely. Ever, you know, all, all absolutely, it's sure. a totally different new set of rules at that point. So, and and for and some people that works well, some people that doesn't work well, and but there are some business that have to have because you always people hear, well, I will, I'm going to bootstrap. Hey, that sounds so great, and I have done that. But guess what? There's a big difference between a ten million dollar business, twenty million dollar business, thirty million dollar business, and a quarter of a billion dollar business and a billion dollar business. It's a different, you know, the things that you need to run a business like that to build a scale business like that requires investors. Period. And so, no, that's great. Again, I have Jim Sherman with me and Catalina Daniels. They're the author of Smart Startups: What Every Entrepreneur Needs to Know. Advice from eighteen Harvard Business founders. Okay. It's great to have you both on the podcast and I'm, I'm excited about your book. I hope it does well for you all. If you can all just kind of give me a closing, a closing statement. <laughs> closing statement. Oh, well, I encourage uh, your audience members to go for it, to, to, to go for entrepreneurship, if that's what is, is of interest to them. And I think that uh, it's a journey of excitement and enlightenment and, and enrichment. And I think that there, I think underpinning all of that, and we talk about it in the book is you, you do need to have a dose of resilience. That's going to be crucial. So work on that. It's the combination of motivation and grit that will produce resilience. And that's what will power you forward in what hopefully will be a very successful endeavor in, in, in entrepreneurship. No, I like that. Catalina, any closing advice? Well, I'd, I'd like to thank you first, Sean. Uh, the biggest advice is buy the book, read the book. Uh, it's difficult to, you know, summarize yeah. in, uh, in just half an hour. Um, I would say for aspiring entrepreneurs, uh, find the right time to jump. Uh, that's how we started our discussion. Uh, so think carefully about what you need to have the confidence to face the risk that an entrepreneur uh, that an entrepreneur will face, and um, you know that can be related to uh, the financial mattress that you want to have. Uh, that can be related to your family situation, can be related to your reputation, but that's the beginning of it all. Uh, and then once you make the jump, make sure to have the right foundation. We talked a little bit about the idea. Uh, we didn't talk about the team, 
but part of our message is find a team that works for you. There is a myth that there is an ideal team. We bust that myth and you need to find a team that works for you. If you find the right time to jump with a good idea and a right team, you're and you read this book, you're going to be successful. I like that. I, I listen. I always say a big dream with a bad team is a nightmare. So, um, you know, I, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I'm a fanatic about that. When I have a, a startup idea, I, I immediately start putting my team together. Uh, and, and it's just just so true. I want to thank you both for being on the podcast. Audience, get this book. If you can't learn something, shame on you. I mean, if you got advice from 18 founders, I'm going to tell you this. If you had the advice from 18 different people that started a lemonade stand, you would learn something. You take 18 entrepreneurs and you just get to pick their brain and grab something that they maybe they wish they would have done different or maybe something they did that worked at a level they never imagined. That's how you learn. You, I've always said, uh, you know, I, I'd rather hear failure through a secondhand story than firsthand. Um, so so I, I always encourage you to buy these books. That's why I interview so many authors. I want to thank you for listening. Podcast is brought to you by Gig Strategic, the best digital marketing company on the planet. If you're a small business and you'd like to have everything, I, I like that they turnkey everything for my companies. They're, they're fantastic. So reach out um, to Gig Strategic and thank you for listening to the podcast. We'll talk again soon.